it was a phone call from Barry McGuigan which set in motion Josh Taylor's professional career. A career which saw him win a world title after just 15 fights, and then unify his division just five months later. A career which can hit new heights this weekend, as Taylor attempts to become his country's first ever four-belt world champion. But how did he get there? How did a young boy from a small fishing town on the east coast of Scotland emerge as the heir to the thrones of Benny Lynch and Ken Buchanan? For Mirror Fighting, I'm Martin Dommen, and this is Making a Fighter, the Josh Taylor story. to any of Josh Taylor's family or friends, trainers or teammates, and they will tell you two things. One, he is the world's worst loser. And two, they all knew he would be special. Obviously, you can't predict he was going to be, you know, a world professional champion, but it was obvious that he was going to be really, you know, very good boxing. I was telling everybody, everybody I met, everybody I met in the pub, I was telling them, Josh Taylor's going to be an world champion. He was spanning guys like... Frankie Gomez, world champion. Rigondo, Josie Benavides. But one day in the gym, Rigondo and Josh sparred and the whole gym stopped to watch it. Those were just a handful of people who influenced Josh's career. But more from them later. And more about Josh's boxing later. Because his story does not start in the ring. It doesn't start with a punch bag or even with a pair of boxing gloves. It starts, in fact, with another sport altogether. Yeah, he got into Taekwondo about, about five, so probably, you know, the same sort of time he started in school, he started Taekwondo. Mark Harkis, Josh's older cousin who, along with his uncle Peter, played a key role in his early sporting success. I just remember as far as competition, he was at a junior level. There was like two or three kids that were his age and it was always those three vying for the gold medal, you know. They had some, <laughs> people would stop and watch their matches because they were always entertaining. There was no backing down, even at sort of 10-year-old level. At that level especially, there's not to be, not supposed to be much uh, contact, but, you know, boys will be boys a little bit and they want to win. You know, some people are just, one, maybe naturally more gifted than others and two, more dedicated. You know, they're just really want to be really good at something, take it really seriously, especially if you're going to go down the competition route and that's what that's the route that Josh was going down. Josh's talents didn't go unnoticed at school either. Sure, there were the fisticuffs which are the hallmark of many a future professional boxer's childhood. But like so many before him, Josh found an outlet in the gym. I also remember being in the gym at the time we had a, a kind of makeshift gym. At the time I played a lot of rugby, so I thought I was pretty fit, but he was <laughs> his next level and he was driven. And the kind of thing when he was doing press-ups and stuff, everybody stopped and watched. Quite impressive. Chris Thomas, who was Josh's PE teacher in his final year at Preston Lodge High School. I remember this one lesson. I didn't have a clue who he was. I remember him asking and he said, you know, you like karate. And I thought, well, that's great, but I didn't know there was anything... Nobody gave me a kind of, oh, you watch this kid, he's going to be brilliant. Because you get a lot of these prodigies, but I didn't have any inclination that he was going to be anything special like he is. You can see why, because because of that drive. Like you say, that competitive nature, but also that drive, competitive against himself, if that makes sense. I mean, the, the press-ups, I remember me doing a fitness class, and at the time, I used to join in and think, well, nobody's going to be able to do more than me. But 
I mean, it was terrifying once he got started. Everything was done really fast as well. You don't see that very often. So no, he was, he was different, that's for sure. At the same time Josh was practising martial arts, he was clinging to his dreams of becoming a footballer. He remains a huge Hibs fan to this day and aspires to defend his world titles in front of the South Stand at Easter Road. Back in 2004, however, age 13, he joined Musselburgh Windsor, one of the country's best junior sides coached by Scott Robertson. I certainly remember him as running a lot and being very energetic. So because he was playing on the, on the left side as a, as a midfielder, you know, he would be up and down and up and down and up and down the pitch. Josh, back then, uh, and I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, you know, was quite a small, slight kid, but he, he did have, from what I recall, quite an incredible engine and he was able to cover which a, a big a big playing field when they're, when they're that young, 13, 14, it's still a full-size man's pitch. It's a big, big surface to cover and he could certainly um, get from one end to the other and back again. Occasionally we'd miss training, maybe even a game, because he had a, a, a competition on or he had training on that he had to prepare for a competition. So I was very well aware that he, he was serious as well about the, the martial arts aspect uh, of his life. And of course, we, we clearly didn't demand that he was always at football because kids should be free to explore it and, and do other things. Ultimately, Taekwondo won out and Josh earned his black belt as well as a string of national honours as he continued to train with his uncle. He believes the martial art gave his nephew a grounding from which to later launch his boxing career, teaching him respect and discipline while instilling in him a regimented training regime. I would say Taekwondo is a life skill. And so he was uh, a bit introduced to the sort of, just these ideas anyway. And um, I think Taekwondo meant a lot to Josh as a, a youngster because I don't know if you see the tattoo that he's put uh, on his uh, ribs here, but that, that that is Taekwondo in Korean. So that showed that that time in his life, Taekwondo was quite an influence. A lot of the... Uh, the real sort of serious people in Taekwondo all have a tattoo with Taekwondo on it. Quite, um, and uh, I think uh, that was a statement in a way how he felt at that time. Naturally, he was a good mover in Taekwondo. He could lift his feet and kick good. And you can see the kind of range of punches he's got. He's just a, a, a well-balanced athlete. That's how I would describe Josh. But despite his ink and his medals, Josh did not grow up idolising those who traded leather for a living. Instead, his heroes came from the world of motorbikes, including Valentino Rossi, widely considered the greatest of all time. His passion for bikes has never left him, even if his own teenage career ran out of gas due to the mounting maintenance costs. But Josh was aware of Alex Arthur, a local lad done good who would go on to become world champion. I was in training camp and I was I think I was either defending my European title or challenging for my European title. And I, I arrived at the, the reception at Meadowbank, like I always did. And I spoke to all the people that work on reception, like I always did every day before I went into camp. And everybody was always waiting there to have a chat with me. And it was a press day. And I arrived and Diane was at the front desk. And I got on great with Josh's mum. I really did. Such a lovely woman. So I arrived at the desk and uh, Diane said, Hi, Alec. And remember I told you about my son? He's done some taekwondo. And do you mind if you could come and watch a press day today? 
he's off school now. It was the school holidays. I think it was in the summer. And I said, aye, of course he can. But she told me before he was a bit lively. And um, he wasn't shy of the odd scrap and stuff like that. And it was a bit of a live wire. She said, so I've, I've said he could come down. I said, aye, that's no problem. So he came down and watched the press day. And I think he was quite taken by everything that was going on. The cameras were there. The media were there. I was getting loads of interviews done. I was shadow boxing. And he sat. He never moved. He sat on a chair. I remember it so vividly. He sat on a chair throughout the whole workout and he never moved a muscle. And I was like, is this the same wee guy she was talking about? She's telling me he's, he's crazy, he's wild, he's got tons of energy, jumps about mad. So I said to him, get up off this chair that you've sat on for the past two hours. I says, and get some boxing gloves on, man, and hit the bag or something. I says, I'm training hard here and you're just sitting watching me. I says, you know, you could you could easily join in. Right in the ball of eye, so... We put some bandages on him and we put a pair of gloves on him and he started hitting the bag and I was like, oh, this wee guy, he's done this before. So I said to him, you done this before? No, no, I've never boxed before. Um, but, I, but I did Taekwondo. And I was like, all right. I says, well, my advice to you would be forget kicking people and start focusing on punching people, I says, because you're very good. I'm a really eye, I said, aye. So for the rest of that training camp, he showed up at camp every day. At night time, he went the runs with us. He trained in the gym with me every day all the way up to the, to the title fight. It was crazy. Josh was also familiar with Ken Buchanan, arguably Scotland's greatest boxer, who was crowned the undisputed lightweight world champion in 1971. His reign would end the following year at the hands of Roberto Duran, who later refused to honour a rematch. Buchanan would challenge unsuccessfully for another world title in 1974 before retiring eight years later. Fast forward a quarter of a century, and it was Ken's eldest son Raymond who had himself flirted with following his dad into the family trade, who would teach Josh the basics. Well, I went to a function in the community centre in Preston Pans the summer in 2006. I met Josh's mum during the break. She says to me, would you consider looking at my, my son's video? He started boxing, he was only 15. So I went and had a look at it. I spotted loads of things, you know, I spotted tons of mistakes he was making. It was his third fight. The guy who was fighting was only had three fights as well. It wasn't like, you know, he was overmatched or anything. His feet were off the ground. He was, like, they told me he was into Taekwondo. So his feet was bouncing off the ground. He's like, you know what I mean? If you're two feet are off the ground, you're going to go on your back, eh? He just, um, he wasn't bobbing and weaving. He wasn't, he wasn't, he was gone too low. He was ducking too low. He wasn't maximising his punches. And there was lots, there was lots to work on. The pair became inseparable as Josh made rapid improvements thanks to a training programme which involved sessions in the gym, brutal runs up punishing local hills, shadow boxing underwater and slightly more unorthodox drills in the local pub. I asked a guy called Davy Fisher if I could use the room above the Johnny Cope. It just had tables and chairs and like a small dance floor. Just a very small dance floor but enough to work on, you know. And I got in touch with my mate Alex Kelly, who'd run my Bank Boxing Club, the club that Josh had was going to. He gave me a body bag, and this thing weighed a ton. It was like um, a Roman shield, you know what I mean? It was like it covered your whole body, you know? Um, and and the, the reason he gave me it was because the pad on the back of it on your neck was missing. The strap really cut into my neck. The first day he came in the hall, I set a string line up for shoulder height across the hall with duct tape through one side and ripped all the paint off the facings. I'd set a string line up for shoulder height to shoulder height. This was for to get them. But instead of going too low, just you just need to go low enough under your shoulder, you know, under your shoulder. And I strapped on two kilogram weights to his ankles. 
to keep his feet down. I gave him, I don't know if a two kilogram, maybe a kilogram for his hands, so as he could slip under the rope, throw a punch, slip under the rope, throw a punch, and he moved across the hall under the rope, slipping and throwing, slipping and throwing. Well, that was going on, I was setting up, setting up the CD, and we always played James Brown. That was my big energy. I done a mean impression of James Brown. So while I was doing that, to, to make him concentrate, I used to dance about and sing James Brown at the top of my voice, screaming, like trying to put him off. That's how it started. You know, he says to me, I watched the Rocky films and I just finished the last one last night. He says, I saw that on one of the Rocky films, the string line. He says, I'm going to call you Mickey. So he called me Mickey after Rocky's trainer. And at one stage, he was wanting to go back to Taekwondo to get 12 or £15 an hour training Taekwondo. And um, I spent half the time training him and half the time talking him into doing boxing. I said, Josh, you can see the world. You'll see the world. There's nothing to think about here. I said, you'll see the world. I said, I can see it in you. After like a few months, I could tell. I could tell like I can make this guy world champion. In the end, Josh's relationship with Raymond lasted just a few months, and his former trainer still rankers at what he believes was a broken handshake agreement that he would remain Josh's coach for his whole career. But in their time together, Josh won the Scottish title and only saw his run at the British Championship halted by the more experienced James Chazza Dickens, who would go on to turn professional four years before Josh and who is currently preparing for his own world title shot against Kid Galahad. Josh's next stop was the renowned boxing club in Gilmerton, where Raymond Gibson took over his training. I remember it well uh, when he first walked through the doors. Uh, he loved the training, Josh. Eh? He, lo- he loved the hard training and he thrived off it. The club we had, the club we had at Gilmerton at the time, we had uh, multiple Scottish and British champions at schoolboy, junior youth and senior level. The, the club was absolutely thriving. For, and for Josh to only come through the doors with two or three fights as an amateur boxer, he just he hit the ground running straight away. And it was very clear that uh, he was uh, an exceptional talent. Josh settled in straight away, and then, and then, and then it wasn't long until he was holding his own with boxers that's had ten times as many fights a month and at a much higher level. You could see Josh's potential very quickly. I can remember Josh only had maybe two or three club fights, and the last club fight, the club show fight, just on a normal club show, was against a former Scottish internationalist. Josh beat him, beat him well. And that's when Josh actually started going along to the Scotland training, near enough straight after that. So with half a dozen fights under his belt and relatively new, he was right in the Scotland scene all in a one year. So it's quite remarkable. Kevin Smith was Scotland's head coach when Josh embarked on a national career that took him all over the world, to two Commonwealth Games and to the London Olympics. It's pretty obvious once you got to work with Josh. That, you know, he was a very determined, fiery young lad. That was his nature. Once I started taking him to tournaments and once he started competing for Scotland at international level, it was apparent that he was a very bad loser. You know, he'd, he'd lose his temper, something terrible, if he didn't get the decision in a fight. He's one of those lads, he, he, you know, he wears his heart on his sleeve. He's a very determined young kid, as I say. He's the sort of kid that he'd, um, he'd fight you all day and night and he'd never give up. <laughs> he'd keep fighting you for days and days until he won <laughs> that's what sort of uh, attitude he had once we started going to tournaments around Europe it didn't take Josh Joe Am as well it didn't take him very long to start winning eventually Josh was winning the boxer of the tournament uh, a few t- I remember going to a tournament in 
I think it was in Bosnia, and Josh won the gold and got uh, at a youth tournament and got boxer of the tournament, and the trophy was about three foot tall. <laughs> it was enormous. But Josh was really proud of it, you know. He took that home with him. So he was playing catch-up at first in terms of experience in boxing, but it didn't take him long to um, to reach the top, you know, for his, for his age group and, and weight class. Meanwhile, Gilmerton Boxing Club had been ravaged by fire, and slowly but surely their best talent had left. Many of them, including Josh, headed five miles north to Loch End and renowned coach Terry McCormack, whose blink-and-you-miss-it gym makes no secret of its link to its more successful graduate. I always wanted a gym in my era, lock in, and this came available. It was an old scout cabin, log cabin, and it'll be empty for years, getting vandalised and stuff. So I just approached the local council and um, we got the green light. We got a few sponsors together and we, we just got the gym together. They come, they've got to be disciplined, put the hard work in and show me if they want to be boxers. I mean, we also let kids in that just want to come and work out, you know, uh, and just get off the streets. But if they say to me they want to commit to boxing, then they have to show me real commitment. You know, they have to get their head down, be in here three, four nights a week, because this is a really tough game and they need, they need to put the hours in. And I tell them all that. If they get 100% and I see they're getting 100%, I'll give 100% back. In his best-selling book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell examines the factors which lead to success and, to simplify, concludes that often it is a case of being in the right place at the right time. Perhaps if Josh's mum hadn't worked in the same leisure centre where Alex Arthur was training, he might never have laced up a pair of gloves. And it just so happened that when Josh joined Loch End, Terry McCormack was making changes of his own. Right at the beginning, Josh showed all the attributes he wanted that. He actually had a part-time job in a leisure centre. He quit that because he wanted to be in here every day with me. And the timing was good for Josh. We just opened in 2007 and i done this kind of two jobs at once. I was coming in here every day as soon as I finished my work. I had to give that up because it was killing me. So I decided to do that. And it's just nice timing for Josh Taylor because now he's got a full-time coach. Most gyms in the country are... Part-time, you can go on two or three nights a week. I decided to open this gym every day. So Josh Taylor now had a gym and a coach that was there 24-7. And with Josh showing that he wanted it 100%, I gave 100%. And Josh came in here every day, bar illness or whatever, uh, for three years solid. And he showed he wanted it. The gym supported him, obviously. The kid was scant. Never, Josh was scant. We couldn't take juice off him. His mum and dad fed him. Never took dig money from. But Josh had to show us week in, week in, week out, month out, that he wanted it. Showing Terry that boxing was now his sole focus proved easy for Josh. What was more difficult was learning how to control his raging desire for perfection. That was the biggest part of my job, getting Josh to understand that he'll have a bad day in the gym, he'll have a bad spa. Josh couldn't understand that. Josh would go crazy. If his timing was off on the mix, if he had a bad round in sparring, not even a bad round, if he had a bad half a minute in a round in sparring, the gumshoe would get spat out and kicked across the room, the head guard would get chucked off. That For the first couple of years, it was just chipping away at that mental thing in his head that's saying, Josh, you're going to get hit. You're going to have bad days. We need to start bottling that, controlling it, 
and just getting on with the task and sticking to the game plan. And Josh, well, for instance, one scenario that helped, we used to go to Los Angeles a lot, to Freddie Roach's, and he was only like 19, and Manny Pacquiao was his hero. And Freddie used to say, the gym got empty, the Manny was in for, for this training, but he used to leave all the Scottish guys in, because I've come a long way and stuff, and we were quite friendly with Freddie. So Josh is now this close to the ring watching his, his hero. And one day Manny got a, a beating in a round. Bad, like it was a bad round. And I just leaned over and Josh was like mesmerised. I just leaned over and said, Josh, did you see that? He went, yeah. I went, that's Manny Pacquiao, Josh. Four times world champion. I went, did he go in the half? Did he chuck the game plan out the window? No, I says, well, what makes you think you can do it, Josh? You've got to watch that and learn for that. Next round, Manny comes out and beats his out of the boy. Josh's previous club had been renowned for hard sparring and the move to Lock End brought no respite, as Josh shared hundreds of rounds with British champion Paul Appleby. He remembers a young kid who was eager to learn and who constantly questioned the professionals with whom he shared the ring. I always have had a good left hook to the body and just stuff like punches, the weight stand, and that's when he first started kind of thing. Just the best weight stand, to your balance and stuff, and just to throw the punches the correct way. And Yeah, you could tell he had done something before because... He knew he was quite, he looked like he was a natural fighter, so you could tell he had definitely trained before. I'm sure I was British champion when Josh first started professional. I was um, 20 years old and it's Josh 30 now, so that'd make him 16 maybe. I think that's when Josh started, when he was about 16. It was a couple of years after that I started sparring with Josh, I'm sure, maybe when I was like 22. And then, oh, you could learn stuff really quick and then you could see him improving every other week. You knew he had big potential. He was tough and he was always really fast, Josh, and that's good sparring a professional. It's good sparring amateurs sometimes because they're a lot quicker and they throw a lot more punches for shorter times, for like, say, like three rounds or four rounds. They say speed's power and you can tell when you spar Josh, it definitely is. He started punching really hard and fast. Couldn't even see them coming, to be honest. Alex Arthur, meanwhile, had gone on to beat fellow Scotsman and future three-weight world champion Ricky Burns before being crowned WBO super featherweight champion. And as he continued his own career, he sensed there was a new kid on the block with the potential to follow in his footsteps. I remember sparring all the lads I sparred with growing up, especially in Scotland, and he's certainly the one who progressed the most rapidly in terms of the sparring. And I remember him getting to the point where he was becoming very, very good. Very, very good. It was just really quite easy to see for me that he was uh, that he was going to be good, you know. He, he, he picked up loads of my traits, you know. He, he goes to the body very well. He's always mischievous, you know. He, was always, he always had a, an impish grin and, you know, he would always, uh, a bit of a joker as well, but, you know, he was, he was all business when he got in the gym normally, you know, and I really did admire that about him. He would often just change and switch and, you know, when it was time to wrap the hands, he was ready to go. His work ethic was brilliant and, you know, he's kept that up to this day. As Josh's club career went from strength to strength and his bond with Terry McCormack grew ever stronger, he began to make his mark at international level. Josh won silver at the 2008 Commonwealth Youth Games in India, losing in the final to Clevon Rock of Guyana. Now, the record books say simply that the contest was stopped by the referee due to injury. Josh Taylor, you won't be surprised to hear, did not consider a bloodied nose to qualify as an injury and fumed at the decision, not for the first time in his career. He would again fall short two years later 
when he met future Team GB captain Tom Stalker in the Commonwealth Games final in Delhi. By now, Mike Keane had taken over the national side. That was when Josh really started showing what he was. Um, he was only a young guy, I think he was 19. All of a sudden he's in the final against the, the English captain at that time, who was Tom Stalker, who was full-time on GB. So he's getting all the, the benefits of that full-time boxing. Josh is still dodging about with the part-time stuff at, at Lockend, which would be helping him coming in here um, at the weekends in the Kingdom Club. He competed right up to the end and the only thing that beat Josh that day and they got the silver was, I would say, experience. Tom Stalker was a lot older, probably eight, ten years older and had been, if he's a captain of the team in GB then he's got a lot of experience, he's got a lot of knowledge. He was never more skillful than Josh. Josh had the skill, Josh had the hand speed, he just didn't have that experience. I spoke to a dozen people for this podcast and to a man that each offered a story, unprompted, about Josh Taylor's will to win and his refusal to give up. For Mike Keane, a trip to Germany sticks in his mind. He was sparring, he had the big gloves on, had the head guard on and near the end of the round, I just seen him wiping his nose a bit with his, with his glove. He come out, he says, how he b****, I just broke my nose. And I looked at his nose and there was a wee kink in it and a bit of blood coming out of it. And I was like, oh. What can I do? Just get some ice on that right away. I took the gloves off him and that, and I got him just to put the ice on his nose. He's sitting on the bench. I turned round and Josh has got the head guard and the, the span gloves back on. And I'm like, Josh, what do you think you're doing? He says, I'm f***ing going back in. What do you think I'm doing? I says, Josh, your nose. We need to make sure it doesn't get... He says, look at it now. He says, the swelling's doing I've had ice on it. He says, Mike... I've got to get back in there with him. Telling you, I've got to get back in there with him. And there was no holding him back. He's in that ring and he's back in sparring with the guy, the WSB top German guy, and he's getting him what for. I'll tell you what. Again, that's one of the things that you didn't see. You didn't see that he's had that. He's got a bloody broken nose and he's back in. And he's, it's like unbelievable. Unbelievable. Back in with the German, then another one or two runs and comes out after it. I said, I feel a lot better now. I feel a lot better now. He says, in fact, that's not even the sore now. He says, I'll get ice tonight. He says, we'll be back in again tomorrow. That's Josh Taylor. People see somebody like Josh on the TV now and they'll see him for the, the, the 12 rounds or the 10 rounds or whatever it may be. A lot of them, oh, they know that he does training. They know he does this and that. But when, you, when you're on the training camps, even I'm talking about the amateur boxing camps, we would take Josh to, say, Portugal, for instance, on a general conditioning camp. And they, they guys, they, they'd be running up and doing the sand dunes. They'll be lifting beer kegs and, and running up hills and then changing over and somebody else. They'll be doing, like, somebody on their back, running here, running there. Then they'll be doing grueling, long, long, long time on the bag. So it'll not be minute, two minute, three minute. They might do five and ten minute rounds on the bags because it's general. It's a general phase, and these guys are training very, very hard. And I've never even mentioned the span. And the span these guys are doing sometimes, it's like, it's unbelievable the, the amount of work and determination and the attitude that they need to make it in boxing. 
Taylor's meeting with Tom Stalker in Delhi would not be their last, but their second clash, just a month later, would pave the way for Josh to become the first Scottish boxer to represent his country at an Olympic Games since Dick McTaggart won bronze in 1960. Having lost the British Championship semi-final to Martin J. Ward, Josh hit the Liverpool bars and put boxing to the back of his mind. That was his plan, anyway. I thought Josh had won in his semi-final. As far as he was concerned, at that stage, he was out. So he's went out and he's had, I think he's probably had a few pints because I don't remember knocking on his door. I remember having a conversation with him. I didn't think I woke him up out of his bed. But anyway, I remember having a conversation with Josh and I said, Josh, I've just been asked by Rob McCracken if you would consider boxing Tom Stalker tomorrow night in the final. I think Josh's immediate reaction was, oh, I'm not. And I said, I think this is a test to see if you could go on GB. At that time, probably Josh would want on GB. So I asked him, I understand, it's not ideal, Josh. If you want to say no, it's no. But I think you're going to, well, I knew because I'd already spoke to Rob McCracken. Rob McCracken had said to me, if he takes his bout tomorrow's night, he's going to get, I can't remember if it was a trial, a three-month trial, or he's going to get on GB, basically. So I said that to Josh, and Josh said, for once a better word, I f*** it, I'll take it. Josh would fall short against Stalker for a second time, but he impressed the watching Rob McCracken enough to be invited to join the Team GB camp. But with Stalker taking the only available spot at 64 kilograms, Josh was forced to strip 4 kilograms from his already lean frame in order to qualify for London, doing so by reaching the semi finals of the European qualifying event in Trabzon. After opening with a victory at the packed Excel Centre, however, Taylor was outpointed by Domenico Valentino, an Italian who proved to be a thorn in Josh's side throughout his amateur career, also recording wins over the Scot in 2011 and 2013. Josh knew his moment in the spotlight was yet to come, however, and the 2014 Commonwealth Games in Glasgow would prove the perfect stage. He's in the back of the car. I've got three guys in the back, one in the front. I can't remember who they are. Josh is in the back, left-hand side, behind me. I'm driving up the road, and the music's on, and he said something, and I put the music down a wee bit. I said, what was that, Josh? And he leant forward right to me, and he says, I'm winning that gold medal, Commonwealth Games. I'm telling you, Mike, I'm winning that gold medal. And he said it with such the sincere, it was like, he's he's for real. He's not just like, oh, I am going for gold. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. That's easy to say. But he was sincere about getting that gold medal. It is Scotland's honour to present the stage and the setting for the 11 days of celebration of sport and culture, which are our Commonwealth Games. And this night, through the support for UNICEF, this city and this country has demonstrated its beating heart, because the Commonwealth Games belong to us all. So from the people of Scotland, let's affirm the most important message of all. Welcome to the Commonwealth of Nations. Fauxshaga Alapa, welcome to Scotland. Josh was part of a 10-strong Scotland Sky that would go on to win four medals at their home games, and he left nothing to chance in his bid to secure top honours at what would be his final competition as an amateur, even if that meant putting noses out of joint. The Commonwealth Games was a funny one, because the security in the village and stuff is strict. You're meant to get passes in and out and da-da-da. But what would happen was, it's no disrespect to the Scotland coaches, they're brilliant. 
the Scotland coaches are great, but they've just got, we thought, too many guys to work with at once to give them the best preparation to get 100% of them. And Josh was, the pressure on Josh to win goal was massive, unlike any other guy that was at the games. So when we get the name of the guy he was fighting, I would watch the videos at night and Josh would sneak out the camp. I'd drive through to Glasgow, Josh would sneak out the camp and we'd meet at the local gym and we would work on how to beat this guy that he was fighting maybe the next game day. And we'd done that for every fight. And sometimes he got caught, it was, it'd be like, there'd be a team meeting. Be like, where's Josh? Eh, 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 what, what do you mean? Ah, he's the way to meet eh, Terry. Ah, it's not good enough. It isn't good enough, but Josh doesn't really care about what anybody thinks because it's about Josh. He does, Josh will do what's best for Josh to win for his country, for him and for his future. Mike Keane was the man in Josh's corner for his run to the final in Glasgow and he plays down any suggestion of tension over the training arrangements. Josh eased to victories over Wales' Zach Davies and England's Sam Maxwell, and Keane felt the gold medal favourite displayed the world-class attributes which still serve him well today. I could always remember in my own mind that there was, there was rounds, rounds in some of the fights that was just at the time absolutely world-class and he, well, he's went on to show that he could sustain that as well. I, I'm not talking about the three three-minute rounds that he boxed, but there was there was rounds and times in every contest that he had that he just looked absolutely unbeatable and world-class. Waiting for Josh in the final was Namibia's Junius Jones, who had won four fights to reach the showpiece event in front of 10,000 raucous Scots at the Hydro. The huge effort in the last round. From Jonas, he wants this gold medal. He's given everything. A lovely little clip there from Taylor. That was class. Unanimous decision. No gold medalists and Commonwealth men's light welterweight champion in the red corner representing Scotland, Josh Taylor. In his immediate afterglow, Josh suggested he might attempt to qualify for the 2016 Olympics in Rio. But it was always his plan to turn professional. He turned first to Terry McCormack as he sought a coach for his career in the paid ranks. I run lock-end boxing gym. And as I say, I've got 30 fighters carded and I've got 200 members. I feel I do a bigger job helping 30 people than helping one. So if I was to take Josh Taylor on, I know that I would... I have to give Josh Taylor 100% in me. And I'm honest enough to say I can't do that. We're running lock-in boxing gym. Because we've got, like, more internationals coming through. You know, we've got good youths coming through that are going to be internationals and go to these world tournaments. So to give Josh Taylor 100% in me would be me doing it right. would have to be me going down to England with Josh, staying for top-class sparring, going to America, back to the wild card for months at a time, sparring to give Josh what he deserves and what you would need to go to the top in this game. So I couldn't do that. At the beginning, I took Josh to meet all these different trainers and all these different promoters to get the best deal for him. The best deal proved to be with Barry McGuigan, whose son Shane trained Josh to become world champion within four years. Their relationship broke down in 2019, however, and Josh is now cornered by Ben Davison, 
who brought Tyson Fury back from the brink of suicide and propelled him towards becoming heavyweight world champion for a second time. Perhaps Fury himself will attempt to become an undisputed world champion later this year, when he takes on Anthony Joshua in Saudi Arabia. But he could be beaten to the punch by a boy from Preston Pans, who was picked on for being small, but who may soon be standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm.